To episode one of Tell Me a Story, where we take essays, short stories, and poems from the Chill Filter Review, and we bring them to you, audiobook style. We are going to get started right away with a short story by Mark Shapiro. This one's called In Clover, with a reading by Ted Gitsky. Mark Shapiro is a New York Times best-selling author. He is a published short story writer, poet, and comic book writer. He actually makes a living doing this. Don't tell the authorities. Henry rounded the corner and into the tumbled-down quadplex on the south side of town. He was dragging ass, hot and sweaty. The plastic trash bag slung high on his back was beating a numbing tattoo on his shoulder blades. He took the last of the broken stone pathway in a staggering shuffle and finally found the door, way in the back where the sun did not shine. He was home, but it was hardly sweet. It was a shoddy add-on by a greedy developer, barely a studio. It stood a cracked, chipped crumbling edifice around a door that was peeling paint and a doorknob that was hanging by a thread. The windows were cracked, forming odd, surreal landscapes. He had done the best he could on the inside with tar paper and duct tape to no avail. Henry kicked open the door and shuffled inside, where he found June sprawled out on the couch that doubled as a fold-out bed. He gave her a dejected humph. June gave him a glanced, thousand-mile stare and held out her hand, flickering her fingers up into a curled position, the classic shorthand for, where's mine? Henry tossed the trash bag into a dark corner and reached into his pants pocket. He pulled out a wad of folded-up bills and a handful of change and, with an exaggerated gesture that equated with bored royalty, he dropped the money into June's hand. Nine dollars and forty-seven cents. June sniffed at the day's take. Not bad. It would get them a couple of items off the dollar menu and a couple of bottles of night train. They still needed another twenty to cover next week's rent, but this would at least get them through tomorrow. June stood up. Her body had held together fairly well. Henry saw exactly what had attracted him to June in the first place. She stuffed the money into her tight jeans, stretched, and went out the open door, slamming it with an exaggerated crash. Henry hit the crapper, found a swallow left in last night's night train bottle, and downed it. He stared, eyes aglaze at the filth, grime, and poverty that seemed to close in further every day. But Henry had seen worse, and June was a good sport about it all. At least she had been to this point. They had met at the all-night bottle locker around the corner at around 2 a.m. He found her outside the door, panhandling other drunks for enough for a six-pack of the cheapest stuff in the place. As fate would have it, so was he. A deal was struck. 
They would pool their change for a clutch of cans of the cheap stuff and then go back to his place for a nightcap. The booze was just uh, the side of piss, but everything that came after was aces. By the next morning, June had moved in and a division of labor was hammered out. Henry would go out into the world each morning and figuratively hunt. Dumpster diving, coin return slots, and the occasional found wallets outside of bars were his main trophies. Then he would finish the day at the recycling plant where he would cash out for the day. Then it was home and hand over the day's take for June to go out and replenish the larder. So far, everything was working out. They were living so far from the edge that they were hanging on by a fingernail, but they were living in bliss. His thoughts were interrupted by the sound of June doing her best Henry imitation and kicking open the door and sauntering in with a couple of brown paper bags, which she proceeded to lay out between them on the couch. Two mixed somethings on sesame buns and a couple of night train lights. They began to munch and drag. After a moment, Henry matter-of-factly told June that he had something to tell her. June looked him in his bloodshot eyes. She made a joke about packing her bags and catching the midnight train to Georgia. Henry chuckled and belched. No, it was nothing like that. He was quite happy with their situation. But he had run into somebody on the trail today that had hipped him to a new day-labor shack that had opened up a few blocks down the road and that they were looking for people who would do shit work for shit pay. June sized him up for a minute and then cut to the chase. Henry smiled a tight smile. Twenty dollars a day, five days guaranteed. Mentally, they both knew what it meant. Not much, but at least it would keep this poor excuse of a roof over their heads. And neither was looking forward to going back on the streets. They talked it out for the rest of the night, unfolded the hideaway bed, and generated some skin heat. Then they decided to think about it. Henry awoke first, as was his routine. He slipped on his trash-picking clothes and turned to look at June, who was still sawing wood and had kicked the blankets off. Henry surveyed her long, lean form. He picked up his plastic trash bag and walked out into the early morning haze. Henry had decided, as only Henry could, if he made at least twenty dollars today— he would continue on as a man of leisure. If he made less, then he would become a working stiff. For episode one, our theme is simply choices or decisions. As adults, the world gets pretty complicated. I am the proud father of two children, um, aged four and seven right now. It's just fascinating to think of how important a concept like choice is to them. When they get to choose what they're going to wear for the day or what they're going to have for lunch, there's a really intense joy that they get from that sense of self actualization. And as adults, I think we get tired of making choices. 
And what I find interesting about In Clover is the way that our set of expectations can shift so dramatically in relation to the choices that we have made uh, and the life that we have chosen to live. You know, they, they say the greatest weakness and the greatest strength of humanity is our ability to adapt. It's so much easier <laughs> when we're children, and it gets to be very complicated when we grow up. Uh, this next story covers the complications of adulthood in a way that I think is interesting and illuminating. This next one is called Washrooms, and it was written by Kat Hubka, read by Hallie Marie McClure. Kat Hubka is a writer, photographer, and actor in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where she teaches technical writing at UNM. Her poems and essays have appeared in both print and online journals. sun is full, but he is sleeping in, something he rarely does because he rises early to make coffee for his wife. But this weekend, his wife's away visiting family. This morning, he's with me, in a camper, a nest of sleeping bags on four wheels, at an RV park near the Canadian border. I run my fingers over him like a mother caressing her newborn memorizing a new form of her flesh. I trace his scars and the lines on his face and neck like a road map and imagine the history they record. His coarse red hair is thinning on top, but forms a soft carpet on his chest. He stirs under my touch. I freeze. Don't stop, he says. More tickles. His whisper vibrates the mattress, a buried baritone. I resume, and he draws my hand to his chest. Mmm, he says. A jolt of optimism swells. A hope will make love. Sometimes it happens. More often it doesn't, which has less to do with his wife than it does his past. He told me about it on the phone one afternoon. I'm heterosexual, he said. But I sold my body to men. I see, I said. I wanted to understand, but I didn't. Not then. At twelve, he was a runaway on the streets, a child wandering the streets, foraging for food in dumpsters, seeking shelter in bus station washrooms at night. I see the white urinals, the green subway tiles, the metal doors etched with graffiti, the leaves sticking to a cement floor. I see him slouched in a corner, a twelve-year-old boy with wide blue eyes and ill-fitting jacket grimy from the streets and parks he frequents. I see a grown man enter the washroom. I see the man's windbreaker and casual pants. What you doing there, kid? He says, unzipping his fly. He stands at the urinal, waiting for the stream. Nothing, says he. The man hears the boy's thick, broke accent, 
knows the boy's a runaway from Nova Scotia, the Canadian equivalent of Appalachia with its spent coal mines and child labor and poverty and insular isolation. Those bay boys, as they call themselves, are tough. The man knows this boy is one of them. The man's stream starts. He looks at the boy, hands stuffed in his pockets, his eyes shielded by thick brows. He knows the kid is homeless. Vancouver is littered with homeless kids, lurking in washrooms such as these. The highway rest stops, Stanley Park, convenience store parking lots, crawling with homeless kids scrounging for a meal or a fix. This one, the man knows, is hungry for both. He'll be a big man someday, but tonight, here in this washroom, he is still a boy, a lonely, scared, starving child far from home. Easy prey for the man. The runaway knows, the man knows, he's desperate for a meal. The boy is desperate for many things. Love, security, tenderness, a home. But tonight, he'll settle for cash. The negotiations are short, as is the transaction. In total, no more than a few minutes. The boy has learned this. If you get it over quickly, you get what you want from them and they leave you alone. Men who frequent washrooms seeking young boys don't want to be caught with them. The man kneels before him, and the boy allows him to unzip his pants. He feels the man's foreign hands and curiously warm mouth. The boy closes his eyes and thinks about a girl he sat next to in school, making it a swift transaction indeed. The man digs loonies and toonies from his pocket and hands them over. The washroom door echoes when he leaves. The boy shuffles to the sink, turns the hot water on, waits for the steamy flow, and grabs a fistful of paper towels. He washes thoroughly, but he can't remember a time he ever really felt clean. He is sick with shame. He hates his body for betraying him. He wants to ignore his body, its needs. Food, shelter, love. He leaves the washroom to find a fix and forget. I believe my touch can take that all away, but I know the little boy in the washroom is alive and well, hidden inside this man for whom I've given up my entire life. To lie beside him a handful of times, I've left my domestic life in the New Mexico suburbs, divorced my husband, and relinquished my sons to his care. I'm essentially homeless, broke, and without family now, but I don't ask to make love for fear he'll recoil from me. I don't, for the life of me, want to resemble men who frequent bus station washrooms. I comb his chest with my fingers and listen to him wheeze until he rolls over and says, Good morning, beautiful. How'd you sleep? He puts his arms around me. I feel safe in his arms, at home. I don't want to leave the mattress, this unlikely sanctuary in an RV park, but my bladder is about to burst. Okay, I say. He squeezes me and says, Let's go get a coffee. Okay, I say. He lights a cigarette as I slip from the bed and reach for my Levi's. God, he says, how can you be so beautiful first thing in the morning? I stifle a smile and toss him his jeans. I cannot remember my ex-husband speaking like that to me, though he must have, sometimes. Beauty and the Beast, babe, that's us, he says, catching the denim with his free hand. He exhales a giant cloud that billows over the bed. Bathed in smoke and morning light, I think he's the beautiful one. His face is open, his eyes warm. In his fifties, he is still muscular, 
his back strong, supporting a large belly. He seems like a giant teddy bear. I'm concerned about his weight, but say nothing for fear of hurting his feelings. Besides, I know why he overeats. The tension of trying to hold on to two women at the same time. He chews his fingernails, too, nervously gnawing them between text messages he sneaks to me while his wife's home at night. I say nothing about that either, because his masticated fingernails reside at the tip of his fingers, and his fingers are part of his hands, and his hands are part of the hefty form that carries about that little boy who brings out the little girl in me. I stretch in the humid air outside, sensing his eyes on my every move, then adopt a casual stride as if nothing in my life is amiss, acutely aware that the choices I've made since knowing him appear odd. But love, as faith, often appears odd. Lush trees loom overhead, buffeting highway din. I inhale morning air and smell him lingering on my skin as dew clings to grass. When I enter the washroom, the mirror reflects what he sees, and I feel beautiful. Combing my long chestnut hair, I breathe him in, reluctant to rinse off his scent. I cut my hands under the fresh water and splash my face, but I'm not cleansed of leaving my sons by a spigot's effluent. He says, Some things don't wash off, but I don't yet connect that to my wrongs. While I wash, I don't think about the one thing I should, leaving him. He twines through my being like wisteria twists and knots through a trellis and in an RV park with him in my arms. Consequences seem far away. I do not see, when I gaze at my reflection, that I am already experiencing the consequences. I am many years from seeing the effect of my absence on my sons. I dry my hands thoroughly, stuff crumpled paper towels in a trash can, and exit the washroom to enjoy a coffee with the man I love. Self-discipline is a choice, but maybe falling in love is not. Maybe we have no choice. Coming up, we have a poem from Sarah Law, who writes about a personal sort of pilgrimage and, in my mind, really captures the beauty of solitude and personal spirituality. This is Holy Mile at Walsingham, written by Sarah Law, read by Kimberly. Sarah Law is fascinated by saints, sinners, and the twists and turns of language. She lives in London and edits the online journal Amethyst Review for new writing engaging with the sacred. Traditionally, you should walk the mile between the shrines, unshod, sandals, unstrapped, eased off, bare soles tender on the gravel, the arid road. After a hundred steps or so, you become inured to the slow, low-level pain. A Volvo estate zooms past with its Doppler rock tunes, then a fat tractor. 
the grassy verge serves as emergency redemption. Look at you, postmodern, old madam. Two women pushing prams, bustle in the other direction, full of grace, full of grace. The heat keeps on. You start to crave tea. Pots of the stuff. You sense past pilgrims. Flickering. Full of grace, full of grace. Now colder mud spots may be cows. Or horses there before you. Jagged pebbles. Sharp as tacks. Flatlands. Midges, full of grace. Over an hour must be nearly, silly to give up now. One hand rosary, one hand sandals, no reception. Only the swerve of the dirt path, a modest wooden gate. Then a damp alley through shadows too. Low light beeswax. Blue gold throne room. Silence. Soft as slippers. Those subtle moments where we challenge ourselves and sometimes surprise ourselves in terms of what we are able to accomplish. That's a big part of the kind of choices we make as adults, right? How hard are we going to push ourselves? What kind of life are we willing to fight for? What kind of actions can we take and not feel like we have to apologize? That brings us to our last story, which explores that artistic tendency that I believe lives in all of us to do whatever is necessary to continue to be inspired and to create a story and a narrative for ourselves that feels unique. This is an outrageous proposal written by Tim Tomlinson, who is the author of Requiem for the Tree Fort I Set on Fire, which is a book of poetry. And This Is Not Happening to You, which is a book of fiction. He's a co-founder of the New York Writers' Workshop and a professor at NYU Global Liberal Studies. This happened years before I married years before I even met Sandy, my wife. I was teaching a workshop in memoir at the local library. An elderly woman, I'll call Z, enrolled. She was working on a remarkable story about the early years of her married life. Her husband was a noted professor of art history at Tulane University. They had three children, all under the age of 10. They were talking about a fourth, They lived uptown in the Garden District, close by Audubon Park, where she used to take the children and their two pet whippets. She'd unleash the whippets 
and they'd rocket away as if fired from cannons and disappear, it seemed, over the horizon, and then seconds later reappear, only to start the same loops again and again and again. Sometimes people stopped to marvel at their speed, their grace, and the distance they managed to cover in a blink. The children, the two older ones, played with each other, indifferent to the dogs. The younger one slept in the stroller. I told Z that this was a perfect metaphor. She said, for what? And I said, she'd have to keep writing to figure that out. Then a famous art critic named Walter Birch appeared at the university. He began a series of lectures on art since 1945 that later became quite famous in their own right. Birch championed some of the most difficult of his contemporaries, obscure, abstract expressionists, pop artists, minimalists, conceptualists. An anointing by Birch translated to sales in the millions while the artists were still alive. He became enormously influential. He was interested most particularly in work existing right at the intersection of sex and politics, an intersection he discerned in nearly everything. Z attended the lecture series and fell instantly in love. At receptions following the lectures, Birch noticed her fixation, and soon they were launched into an affair that, by Z's account, made her a terrible mother, a worse wife, but a great, even a phenomenal lover. She wrote, Every time I lied to my husband, and I lied a lot, every day I lied, and got on a plane to join my lover, I felt like I was flying off to meet myself. But those were the good times, the carefree times. The conflict began almost two decades later. Birch died, and one of his famous friends wrote a play about the secret affair he'd carried on with Z. Once it opened, there was no mistaking who the mistress was. Z's telephone rang before the final curtain came down. Her life was upended. Her husband left her. Her children didn't speak to her for years. The play was made into a movie. The movie did well. It received awards. Z attended ceremonies where she was treated as a celebrity. Now, in my class, she was nearing her 85th birthday, wrinkled, hunched over a walking stick. She didn't hear well. Her hair was falling out by the tuft. But she still took great care in coming into our sessions well-groomed. She had lovely suits made of fine fabrics that I expected ladies of her generation wore quite casually, but in the current time seemed not only old-fashioned, but bizarre. Some of their materials you might expect to find on upholstery. Her writing had candor and fever. Everyone in the workshop responded to it with great enthusiasm. We encouraged Z to push further and further into the experience, to go deeper into the sex. She wrote of passionate nights in strange cities, Buffalo, Milwaukee, Portland. Birch often lectured in these godforsaken towns, and he'd call her from them, unable to sleep at two in the morning. If she didn't come, there would be wild fights, then fervid reconciliations. Once, after hitting her, he'd sent her a Rothko, she wrote, one that the artist had given him. She kept it in storage for nine years. How could she explain a Rothko to her husband? Until the divorce was final, we were, all of us, dazzled. She basked in our praises. Her eyes pooled, and she left each session glowing. But she wasn't quite sure she trusted our encomia completely.
Something, she insisted. Something essential was missing from the manuscript. One day, I received a letter from her. Dear Professor X, this may seem presumptuous at best, and I acknowledge at the outset that the request I'm about to make is, well, outrageous. But here is what I propose. It would mean so much to me if, before I die, and you and I know that even best-case scenario, that can't be terribly far away. I finished this book that I'm working on in your class and that you've been so kind to compliment and encourage. In other classes before yours, I'd always felt that the encouragement was perfunctory. Oh, let's just make an old broad happy. But yours, it's so specific. It gets what's truly at the heart of the manuscript, and that means what's truly at the heart of me. And here comes the outrageous part. There's only one thing I can't fully capture in the writing without a boost from some present activity, and the chance of getting any present activity, which I'll define in a moment, is slim to nil. That's why I'm just going to come out with it and be blunt. I must have some moderate contact with a penis for a week, maybe two. It will sound crude, I know, but I feel honestly that that's the only way I'll get to the juices flowing around that important part of the book. I think you know this, too. And that's why I need to at least try to make this outrageous proposal, because I'd like that penis to be yours. However you want to do it, quick, your pants around your ankles, your shoes don't even have to come off. Me on my knees, between your knees. If you like more elaborate, we can go more elaborate. A drink, a bottle of wine, music. You can stay, perhaps, for the length of a Bruckner symphony. We can face the television. If it helps, we can screen pornography, the hardest, basest, most repugnant sort. Or you can watch reruns of Gidget, whatever gets you off. All I ask is that you grant me access to your penis and that you allow me to bring it to climax, in me, on me, any part of me, but to climax. One week at least, several times. Two at most. I can't pay you, and honestly, I wouldn't think of doing so, but I will reward you should the book ever materialize. How, I'm not certain. But the immediate reward will be in your firm knowledge of having provided an old woman with the last bit of excitement on this earth, excitement I believe I deserve, we all deserve, and which I'm certain you can provide if you have a will. Sincerely, Z. What surprised me even more than the proposal was my reaction to the proposal. I had actually thickened, and I could feel in my boxers the dewy presence of some pre-ejaculate. What, I wonder, would anyone think of me, especially the other students, if they knew I followed through, that I availed myself of this outlet, and that I did so for the full two weeks, and then some? Well, actually, I don't wonder, or wonder much. I can't imagine too many people would find my decision too commendable, too virtuous, but, nevertheless, I'm sure stranger things have happened. We decided that I'd visit her, that I'd come over in the late afternoon, tea time, and that before or after she might 
provide a snack of some sort with coffee or sherry. Her building was suitably baroque, as was her concierge, with epaulettes that could sweep a sidewalk and enough braiding to dressage a horse, if such a verb exists. I was taken up in an elevator, manned by an equally baroque footman, who slid the gate and brought the elevator floor plumb level with her floor without any discernible effort. Inside, we enjoyed the late afternoon light, no other illumination that would have been unkind, and quite possibly detumescing. She thanked me for coming. I took a central location on an enormous sofa trimmed with cherry wood and covered in ornate pillows. It could have fit in a room at Versailles, I imagined. As could her perfume, a pronounced yet elusive fragrance that still causes me to shiver. We kept her brassiere on and fastened, and so, for a view, a late afternoon view with only natural light, I had the thinning hair of a mid-octogenarian arranged in such a way as to camouflage most of the scalp exposure, the bony clavicles, and the black straps of what might have been a sexy bit of business on a woman fifty years younger. But good enough. I sat back, and on the wall across from me hung that gifted Rothko, maroon and dark brown, something in the three feet by five feet size range. One similar had only recently sold for over $80 million. I thought, well, if you can't climax to a Rothko, what then? I was a fan of the author Henry Miller, whose crude and hilarious musings on sex had once likened the sensation of the mid-coitus penis to a dolphin on the oyster banks. A dolphin on the oyster banks. Dwell on that for a moment. The shape, the thin marine lamination of slime that covers all creatures of the sea, the soft yielding and soaked contours of the oyster, and the sporting, playful exuberance of the dolphin, cushioning into all that yielding wet tissue, tissue sort of alive, sort of stimulated to massage. That is what I thought, looking up into the fathoms of that maroon Rothko while spelunking the caverns of Z's mouth and tonsils and throat. I say spelunking, but that's inaccurate, really. It assigns the activity to me, whereas for all intents and purposes, it was Z acting out of some primordial muscle memory, some chthonic longing deep buried in her cells. And she moaned, and she hummed, and she throated and licked and purred and coaxed until she sampled the first jolt of what she claimed she needed to finish her project. And she remained remarkably glued to my dolphin, if you will, until its tumescence had thoroughly subsided and its fluids thoroughly drained. We remained like that for another good 15 or 20 minutes. The sonatas of Scarlatti, performed by some keyboard expert, tinkling divinely in the background. She looked up, finally, her eyes glistening with tears. Have you ever seen a woman cry when she comes? She said. And I said, you came? She nodded almost comically, solemnly. She said, when you come, I come. I said something like, extraordinary. Birch used to say that physiologically I was the most perfectly designed woman in the world. I said, that has to be in your book. She said, it will be now. 
I excused myself, washed up a bit, looked at myself in the mirror. What did I make of me doing this, I wondered, because honestly, it felt like it was happening to someone else's body, the pleasurable lightness of my loins notwithstanding. And that's what it was like for the next couple of weeks, more or less every other day, a walk through the park, a tip of the hat to the doorman, a rendezvous upstairs, a little Scarlatti keyboard, or a Ravel trio, and I was off. And I became better company in the aftermath of these visits, freer, less determined to do what I was supposed to do, and more relaxed about following the impulse of the moment. On several occasions, I caught an early screening of a film. Double Indemnity was one, Wings of Desire another. No theme, no plan, no pressure. I ate dinner alone at tables in the window or tables outdoors, enjoying the food and the parade of citizens going about their rigid structures. What, I wondered, would any of them think if they had even the slightest idea of what I was doing? In the midst of this, we had two meetings of the workshop. Z was the model of discretion, not an iota of betrayal of our intimacies. And the work. She produced new material for each session. The work was met with resounding approval. After the second session, the students insisted on taking her for drinks. They needed to know how she'd arrived at what they experienced as the memoir's key, its carnal spirituality, one called it, the tone that opened up the entire experience in such a way that she, the narrator, was transformed from being either an ogre to her husband and children or a victim of her paramour to being instead the embodiment of sensual agency. I want to be this woman, several of the females in the workshop had said. I mean, the way she just owns desire. Amazing. And then, of course, Z died. I appeared for what I was going to tell her would be our final assignation. The concierge with the epaulettes informed me with pools in his eyes of her passing earlier that day. Family, he said, was still upstairs. Did I want to go up? He'd ring them. The manuscript, of course, disappeared, despite its appearance in her will. She'd left it to me, and her daughters and son, each in their mid to late sixties, apologized profusely. Could they offer me something else from the estate to compensate? I said, well, I wonder if she owned anything by Rothko. They exchanged looks nervously, then laughed, relieved, it appeared, at hearing only a preposterous request. Their attorney, God bless him, was less amused. He said, that is, of course, an outrageous proposal. I said, of course, one has to try. I left the rest to them. Several weeks later, I received a small package with a note from the youngest daughter. Our mother, she wrote, spoke very fondly of you. We thought you should have something. I unwrapped the package carefully. It was about the size of a composition tablet. I snipped the cord and unfolded the wrapping paper. Deep inside, very well protected indeed, was a framed photograph covered with glass. It was a black and white portrait of a pair of whippets seated in front of the fireplace in a Tony Garden District home. 
Sandy, my wife, asked me about its significance. It had none, I told her. Just a gift left behind by an old friend. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me a Story. I'm your host, Krister Axel. You can hear new episodes of Tell Me a Story every weekend, Fridays and Saturdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, and then again at 6 p.m. If you would like your piece featured in an episode of Tell Me a Story, just visit us at chillfilter.com and click the Write for Us link, and that'll get you started. I want to say thanks to our voiceover talent and to our writers. We couldn't do it without you. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.